Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And you may have never heard of today's subject, but Avicenna was one of the first and probably the most influential Islamic philosopher scientists. He's listed among the great philosophers in Dante's Inferno. And in the prologue to the Canterbury Tales, the doctor of physic who was in the party has studied his work. There's also a portrait of him hanging in the hall of the Faculty of Medicine in the University of Paris. He had this expansive, brilliant knowledge, and he was so methodical and systematic in the way that he wrote down and cataloged information that his work in medicine became sought after, basically all over the place. He influenced the field of medicine throughout the Islamic and Christian medieval worlds, and his influence in Europe in the field of medicine lasted well into the 17th century, to the point that schools based their entire medical curricula on his writings. He was also one of the most important philosophers in history. His work, which was written mostly in Arabic, was rooted in Islam, along with Aristotelian and Neoplatonist philosophy. In the Muslim world, this philosophy continues to be studied today. And the fact that Avicenna was influential to both Christians and Muslims makes him really unique among ancient philosophers and scholars uh, of his time. Today, his work exists in more than 200 commentaries, annotations, abridgments, and translations. So as we usually do, we'll start at the beginning. Uh, and in Farsi, his name is actually Ibn Sina. In Arabic, it's Abu al-Hussein Ibn Sina. Avicenna is actually the medieval Latinization of his name. And we're calling him that instead of calling him Ibn Sina uh, because the overwhelming preponderance of information about him, regardless of what culture it's written from, uh, calls him that. Yeah, He became known by that name a, a very, very long time ago. He was born around 980 in a village near Bukhara, Iran, which is now in Uzbekistan in Central Asia. Bukhara is in south-central Uzbekistan at a river delta, and it lay along the Silk Road. Today, its center is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And at the time, it was the capital, and it was an intellectually rich place to grow up. This was also the fourth century of the, the Islamic calendar, and this part of the world was really flourishing in knowledge and intellect at this point. His father was a governor and a scholar as well, and Avicenna was a very bright and gifted child, and he claimed to have memorized the entire Quran by the time he was 10 years old. His father's position and the number of libraries and scholars where they lived meant that his precociousness was really encouraged and nourished. And much of his early study was in Aristotelian philosophy, but he surpassed his teachers when he was quite young, and so he furthered his education on his own once they no longer had anything they could teach him. At the age of 16, he turned from studying philosophy to studying medicine, which was a discipline that he said he found extremely easy. And when he was still quite young, the Sultan of Bukhara, the city where he was living, got sick. And the court physicians were not able to cure him, but Avicenna did cure him. And as a reward, the Sultan gave him access to the Royal Library, which opened up all kinds of avenues for his own personal study. Getting access to books and knowledge through his practice of medicine for wealthy patrons actually became a pattern that he repeated throughout his life. 
The self-taught knowledge that he got from all this was so broad that he also claimed to have mastered all of the sciences by the age of 18. Brilliant slash a little egotistical? Yes, that comes up often (laughs) in writing about him, that in addition to being extremely smart, he knew he was extremely smart and could be kind of conceited about it. Uh, So when he was a young man, his father died, and he, for a while, held an administrative post. It's possible that he succeeded his father in the governorship, but the records are not entirely clear on that point. So we know a fair amount about Avicenna's life because he dictated an autobiography to a protege named Aljus Johnny. And this protege also added additional biographical information. Some of Avicenna's own correspondence also survives, but we don't really have a whole lot of contemporaneous accounts to balance out this perspective. Um, and the existence of the autobiography also seems to have had this unintended side effect of prompting less scholarship about his life. It was basically like, there's already all this information here, so we don't need to go on a quest to find more of it. (laughs) And especially when it comes to his youth, the autobiography is all we have. Uh, And its discussion of his childhood is really more like the study of a scholar set out in such a way as to act as evidence of Avicenna's own thoughts on knowledge and wisdom. It basically recounts his learning. It moves through increasingly difficult material in sequence, uh, and often his own without instruction. So he basically kind of does maps out the natural progression of, I learned a little bit, I learned some harder things, eventually I had to seek out my own knowledge because no one could teach me. Right. So rather than sort of being a story about how he grew up, this autobiography, when it comes to his youth, is more like an illustration of how a person can acquire wisdom and knowledge through intuition. So it's almost more like a curriculum for learning things and an example of having done it rather than an autobiography as we would think of it today. And in his adulthood, he was known to be a gregarious person who loved life and its pleasures, including drinking and sex. Uh, he was witty and charismatic, and he was often in the company of friends. And at the same time, as is often the case with geniuses, he could also have periods of brooding and loneliness. So go figure. No yeah, surprise, really. Not really. As in many religions, excessive sex and alcohol consumption were quite frowned upon among strict Muslims where he lived. So these same traits that kind of defined him also put him at odds with Islamic conventions and social norms. And they earned him a lot of enemies as well. He had to move from place to place and from patron to patron as he rubbed people the wrong way with his flaunting of religious and social expectations and of you know, being kind of pretentious and hard to get along with. And as we said earlier, he was also a little conceited and arrogant. Uh, he was brilliant and he knew it, and he was not afraid to tell people how much he knew or how very good he was at any particular thing. And this is the one that always makes me go, ooh, no, Avicenna. Uh, he was also not shy about embarrassing and shaming his rivals if they rubbed him the wrong way. Yeah. So he was pretty outspoken about his greatness and everyone else's not greatness. Right. He would do things like show someone a forgery knowing that it was a forgery to see if that person would spot that it was a a forgery in front of others. And when the person did not spot that it was a forgery, make fun of them. So kind of a brilliant jerk. Yeah. But as we are about to talk about extensively, hugely influential and important, especially in the worlds of philosophy and medicine. By about the age of 21, 
Avicenna had started to write, and before his death, he had written more than 240 books, treatises, and other works. And these spanned all kinds of subjects, including math, science, philosophy, music, and poetry. And as we just said, today he is most known and was most influential for his work in medicine and philosophy. So we're going to talk about his philosophy first and his medicine second. His most important philosophical work is the Kitab al-Shifa, also called The Cure, which was an encyclopedia of logic, physics, math, and metaphysics. And this work was modeled after the work of Aristotle with a, a grounding in Islam. And it was translated into Latin in Spain during the 12th and 13th centuries, after which it became hugely influential in Europe. The physics volume wasn't just what we think of as physics today. It also included what we uh, classify more as biology, meteorology, mineralogy, and even psychology. The math volume also includes geography, astronomy, and music, uh, in addition to the arithmetic and geometry that would immediately come to mind when we think about math. And he also wrote about dream interpretations, talisman, and alchemy as well. Although in the end, he rejected the idea that base metals could be transmuted into other things. As a philosopher, one of his most notable thought experiments was called the flying man, also known as the floating man, which reflected on what a completely blank slate of a person could be aware of. So in this thought experiment, imagine that God has just created a fully formed adult person in kind of a sensory vacuum. This person has no memory. He has no sensory input at all. None of his body parts are even touching each other, so he's not even aware of his own body. So in this thought experiment, what would this newly minted person be aware of? According to Avicenna's philosophy, he would be aware that he existed, So to Avicenna, this meant that self-awareness is a fundamental part of life. And that also suggested to him that the soul is different from the body because you could be aware of yourself without being aware of your body. And this was significant because it was different from much of the theology at the time, which largely taught that the soul was a material substance that had an atomic makeup. Right. It was an actual physical thing. This whole idea also draws a parallel between humans and God. Because Avicenna saw God as a self-thinking intellect. So, in Avicenna's view, both humans and God have this ability for self-awareness, and that makes self-awareness something extremely special. According to ancient and medieval philosophy professor Peter Adamson, this was one of the first times that philosophy put forth this idea and this connection between man and God. And Avicenna also created a proof that he believed proved the existence of God, which takes a great deal of explaining. So we will link to uh, a full explanation of it in the show notes rather than kind of taking you through the proof here. Yes, I listened to a 30 minute podcast that was just an explanation of this proof. So. Rather than spending 30 minutes on that, we will... Of all of the various logic steps yeah, that he are, uses. Yeah, there's a lot of logic and a lot of sort of uh, philosophical groundwork that has to be put down first that if you're not already familiar with, it takes explaining it itself. So um, before we move on to his discussion of medicine, let's take a moment and talk about our sponsor. That sounds grand. Okay. And now we'll get back to some extremely important scientific work from very long ago. So Avicenna's most influential medical work was the five-book work, The Canon of Medicine, Alcanum Fialtib, which was influential both in his region of the world and in European medical schools. 
And some of this medical writing was based on the Greek physician Galen's idea that the, of the four humors, which are blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile, along with the Greek idea of four elements of earth, air, fire, and water. And the canon of medicine also draws heavily on the work of Hippocrates. There's also work on uh, anatomy, the causes and treatments of diseases, hygiene, medicines, pathology, basically the whole world of known medicine at the time in one five-volume work. And the fifth book of the canon of medicine is actually a drug formulary, which was a completely new idea in the field of medicine at the time. Like sort of the first pharmacist manual. Yeah. So the canon of medicine was basically one work that distilled the whole of medical knowledge into five volumes. So it's really not at all surprising that it became the mainstay of medical education, and that lasted for hundreds of years. When schools in Europe finally drifted away from it, it was also moving away from the whole idea that humors cause disease when they are out of balance. So basically, Avicenna's work uh, was the core of medical education until medicine moved away from the entire idea that a lot of it was based on. And although this whole idea of humors isn't part of mainstream medicine today, uh, overall, Avicenna's medical writing was well-tested and it was evidence-based. There's some really solid medical thought in there that still holds true today. He also kept clinical records, which were intended to be used as an appendix to the canon of medicine. Uh, Those haven't survived until today, but we do know some specifics about his medical practices. One was that he recommended wine as a wound dressing, which was a common treatment in medieval Europe. And uh, actually, since it contains alcohol, can be effective at helping to prevent infection. He also used reduction techniques like pressure and traction to treat spinal deformities, which is something that Hippocrates had written of. And this whole practice disappeared from medicine after Avicenna's time until a French surgeon picked it up in the 19th century. He also correctly used sweet-tasting urine to diagnose diabetes. So did he taste it? Probably. That is a thing that people would do. Yeah. Uh, and that is definitely... To identify sugar in it. Yeah, definitely an indication that a person could have diabetes. We know that he performed surgery, and there are surgical instruments that belong to him in museums. And within the world of surgery, one of the things that he did was to describe how to find the healthy margins of a surgical site when performing an amputation. He also wrote about how to cut an umbilical cord and how to clean, swaddle, and feed a newborn baby. So this is basically all over all kinds of areas of medicine at this point. A lot of his writing was also about generally being healthy, how to get well and stay well. And it included the effects of recreation, the home, family life, and all sorts of other factors on human health. So consequently, he's been referred to as the forerunner of preventive medicine, which is something we take for granted today. Yeah, he really, uh, you know, was the first to put forth the idea of sort of a holistic health view versus just treating incidents of health issues. Right. So Avicenna was extremely influential and extremely important. And unfortunately, his life was not particularly long. At the age of 57, he was traveling with his patron and he developed colic, which he decided to treat himself. And ultimately, this wound up leading to his death. The course of treatment that he wanted to undergo involved getting eight celery seed enemas a day. And it's unclear whether this was intentional on the part of one of his attendants, but the formula that he gave to himself 
was prepared to contain more than double the amount of active ingredient that it was supposed to. His intestines became ulcerated as a result. And to treat the ulceration, he used a mild form of opium. And at this time, we know that there was a tampering that was intentional. A slave laced this opium with an extra dose. His health started to go downhill, and he refused to leave his patron. He kept traveling with him. But his condition got worse and worse, and he finally died in 1037. And Avicenna is buried in Hamadan, and his tomb, which had fallen into disrepair, was refurbished in the 1950s. And now it's home to a mausoleum and an 8,000-volume library. Yeah, there's a big sort of pillared monument there. It's very striking to look at. As we said earlier, uh, although his, his medical writing is not really part of modern medical thought, his philosophy is still widely studied among Muslims today. He's one of those people that's so influential, it's almost surprising that you don't hear of him. I had never heard of him before I started. Well, I had heard of him because I've read the Canterbury Tales and Dante's Inferno, but uh, his name had not stuck into my head until I started doing research on this podcast. Uh, It's pretty rare that somebody living at that time would have been that influential among both Christians and Muslims. Yeah, it's a a really interesting story. I actually do kind of want to go read his proof, which I have not yet. I I have only listened to the analysis and description of it that, that took like 30 minutes to explain. Um, perfect the, lunchtime listening. It, it is. It is pretty, pretty perfect lunchtime listening. There are some awesome philosophy podcasts, some of which I used as sources for this. Cool. Uh, we will link them all up in show notes because I don't have them noted right in front of me. But yeah, Avicenna, possibly unknown person credited with the health and welfare of much of medieval Europe. All right. Do you have some listener mail to share with us? I do. I have two pieces of listener mail, and they are both about the Boston Massacre. The first is from Paul, and Paul writes to us. It's a rather long letter, so I'm not going to read all of it, but he writes about where he listens. He apparently cannot listen to us while driving because it requires too much of his attention, but he has been listening while he runs, which is pretty cool. Uh, then he says, as a history major and a trivia aficionado, I particularly look forward to subject matter that I think I know well. I'm always pleasantly surprised by the new facts or perspectives that you bring to the shows. Of course, I love hearing about all matter of subjects that I know nothing of. I have learned more about communicable diseases than I maybe would have cared to learn on my own, for instance. I did want to put... Yeah, I know. <laughs> you and us both. We did have a whole run of, uh, of tuberculosis and smallpox. And yeah. Things. I did want to put in my two cents about your Boston Massacre episode as a proud Bostonian. I felt it my duty. I was really excited for this episode as a colonial America buff and a local of the Boston area. I did want to add another cause for tensions that led to the riot, namely the quartering acts, where Boston colonists were forced to house the British regulars who were sent there to essentially suppress the Bostonians and their dissatisfaction with the Townsend Acts. The soldiers were sent in part as a reaction to the non-importation acts revived in Boston, where the city refused to buy any imported goods as a measure that was adopted across the northern colonies eventually. This hit the English merchants in their wallets, and that had been an effective method in repealing the Stamp Acts. Boston's resistance uh, became the spark that eventually ignited the rebellion. The, pr- the true presence was a catalyst that made loyal subjects of the crown rethink their positions. Imagine 4,000 soldiers of occupying a city of 20,000. I know the word massacre is an exaggeration, but I always wondered why a mob of hundreds didn't retaliate more violently against eight soldiers after they had shot into a crowd. 
Certainly armed people killing unarmed people is an act that bears some scrutiny. I always found Adam's description of the crowd, which is laden with racial overtones, quite illustrative of how at least some of the forefathers truly did not believe that all men were created equal. Anyway, enough rambling. Keep up the great work. Sincerely, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did not quite say explicitly that, yes, Adam's description of the people who rioted is quite laced with judgment and uh, bigotry, I think is the word. Um, so that is that is letter one uh, about the Boston Massacre. I have letter two about the Boston Massacre, and then we will kind of talk about both of them. Uh, the second one is from our Facebook wall, and it's from Sean. Sean says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I'm a big fan of the podcast and recently listened to the episode on the Boston Massacre. During the podcast, you mentioned repeatedly how the term massacre seems an odd choice to modern ears to describe the event, given the seemingly small amount of lives cost in the incident compared to what we are sadly used to today. While I agree with you guys that the use of the term was undoubtedly driven by political and propaganda aims, I was also curious if somehow the concept of what would pass as a massacre in the 18th century was influenced by the weapons available at the time and the carnage they could dispense. Let's keep in mind that the British soldiers involved in the event were all armed with large-caliber, single-shot, muzzle-loading muskets. These were inaccurate at best, and even the best-trained soldiers, such as the Hessians, the tie-in, and other podcast topic, could only be expected to manage three shots per minute in the best of conditions. So far, I can tell... None of the soldiers involved fired more than once, and some victims were hit multiple times. Perhaps it is therefore unlikely to have expected a greater number of casualties than what actually occurred. Although estimates vary, the number of combat dead in the U.S. Revolution may have been less than 8,000 people. I do not mean in any way to diminish the loss of life, but merely venture the opinion that just as the use of the term massacre seems uncalled for to us today because of our cultural conditioning, perhaps our forefathers looked upon it exactly that because of theirs. At any rate, keep up the awesome work. Uh, and then he suggests a podcast episode topic for the future. So thank you also, Sean. Um, we we got a fair amount of flack from people about how we talked about the Boston Massacre. Yeah. Um, and after getting this particularly reasoned question from Sean, I went and did some looking because I wondered. Uh, I, I was pretty contextually qualified as a massacre. Yeah, I was pretty. I was pretty upfront at the beginning that I think of massacres today as something like horrifying and terrible, and uh, it turns out it's always meant something horrifying and terrible. So the word massacre comes from French words that relate to butcher's knives and blocks. Uh, So that's what it meant originally before it became something that meant slaughter. Its first uses in English came from the 16th century and referred to the bloody massacre at Paris. And that's the the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day. So to catch everyone up, if you have not heard of this before, in this massacre, Catherine de' Medici, who was Catholic, orchestrated the murder of the Huguenot nobility, who were Protestant. And these were people who were in Paris for a wedding. Let's not in any way aggressive. Well, I mean, there was tension. There, there were, were tensions, but there, their, yeah. their visit to Paris was not about was being aggressive. a wedding. Specifically, the wedding was of Catherine de' Medici's daughter, Margaret, to Henry of Navarre, who was a Huguenot and would later become Henry IV. So, the final death toll of this massacre was in the thousands. And a lot of the people who were killed were serious. They were in their homes or working in their shops at the time. 
Some of them were even attendants who were attending Huguenot aristocrats who were in the Louvre <laughs> for the wedding festivities at a time. So, like, I, I see what people, like, there are people who felt like we really treated the massacre, in quotation marks, too lightly. Massacre has really always meant something horrifying involving either massive carnage or the slaughter of innocent people who were doing nothing. And that's really not what was happening in Boston on that day. In Boston on that day, we had a big group of civilians who surrounded a small group of armed soldiers and were like throwing rocks and oyster shells and things at them and and insulting. So I'm not saying anybody should have gotten shot. It's still a huge tragedy. Yeah, it's definitely a tragedy. It is also definitely not a massacre. Yeah. By the definition of of massacre. Um, Not even the connotations of massacre, like the actual dictionary definition of massacre. So... Uh, while it's definitely not our intent to make light of anyone's death, there was a whole lot of stuff going on in terms of the factors that led to the altercation in the first place, and definitely for sure the fact that American uh, colonial writers portrayed it as a massacre specifically as spin later on. Because uh, like we said, the first massacre ever described in English, thousands of people who were in Paris for a wedding, many of them. A lot of them just were living in Paris doing their jobs and living in their houses when they got murdered. So, on that cheerful note... (laughs) (laughs) So, if you would like to email us and share your thoughts, you can do so at historypodcast at discovery.com. We also have some new ways to connect with us, uh, or old ways with new addresses. You can connect with us on Facebook still, but now we're at facebook.com slash history. Uh, we're still on Twitter at Missed in History. We're still on Tumblr at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. And our Pinterest has moved and expanded rather significantly. So you can find us there at Pinterest.com slash History. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about one of the subjects that Avicenna wrote so much about, come to our website. Put the word math in the search bar. You will find how math works. You can do all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 